0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Tobacco dependence frequently requires repeated courses of treatment in order to reach long-term smoking abstinence it's difficult to obtain both initial abstinence and even more difficult to achieve long-term success for the average patient up to eighty percent are unable to remain abstinent from smoking for more than six months then there are patients who have tried just about everything to stop smoking and have been unsuccessful this is the group that we will be discussing today our topic will be treating nicotine dependence in challenging patients With us today is Dr. Taylor Hayes, a general internist in the Division of General Internal Medicine and the director of the Nicotine Dependence Center at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Taylor. Hi, Daryl. Thanks for having me. Is there evidence that smokers have an increasing risk of having other addictive behaviors?
1: Yeah, there is. Um, Certainly, there's a connection between um, generally smoking and other substance use disorders. Uh, And very close connection between tobacco use and heavy tobacco use particularly and um, alcohol use. Those seem to be very closely connected. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you see the similar patterns in in people with other substance use disorders that they are also addicted to nicotine, tobacco.
0: I'm having trouble thinking of patients I've had who have had alcohol problems who didn't also smoke. And that seems to be a common connection.
1: It's unusual to find them, especially uh, it goes both directions. Heavy drinkers are most often smokers, and, and heavy smokers are most often also drinkers. Um, and that can sometimes create some particular challenges for treating both. Sure, yeah.
0: In patients who have had a history of alcohol dependence but are abstinent, but they still smoke, will smoking cessation increase their risk to start drinking again?
1: No. And um, right now, I think people recognize that uh, there's n- it does not increase the risk for a relapse to drinking, although that myth still exists, especially, and ironically, among some people in the treatment community. In um, alcohol treatment in particular, A lot of the treatment providers are recovering Mm -hmm. people, and that's not unusual. And and they obviously have uh, both intimate knowledge of what that addiction is like and a great passion for helping people with that addiction. Uh, But they're often also um, smokers, and so some of the same problems uh, that are occurring in their patients, they're a bit blind to. Mm -hmm. And so it's been hard to get that um, support from the treatment community there are no studies to suggest that you threaten sobriety for someone who is recovering from alcohol and also a smoker if you treat them for smoking cessation. But here's one sad fact. Um, We did a study here in Rochester um, from a, uh, a, a epidemiological data set called the Rochester Epidemiology Project. And we looked at people who had received treatment in Rochester for alcohol dependence And then we, because of the way that project works, the the data is um, long-lasting. We we can follow patients for many years. We looked at the outcome of those patients 20 years later, and we were particularly looking at causes of death. Mm -hmm. Over half of the patients who had been treated for alcohol dependence in Rochester died of tobacco-caused disease, so typically lung cancer, head and neck cancer, COPD, coronary heart disease, and most of them were continuing smokers throughout those years and so the sad truth is we in the treatment community often um, have failed to provide treatment for tobacco dependence after either simultaneously with treatment for alcohol or afterwards and then those patients go on to continue to smoke with the idea that this actually may be helping me it's keeping me from relapsing to alcohol or other drugs and that's simply not true it's just putting them at risk for all those diseases we know that tobacco causes
0: So if you've got a patient who is dependent both on tobacco use and alcohol, do you tackle both addictions at the same time, or is it better to do one at a
1: time? It depends. I'm sure you love that answer. Yeah, so let me uh, absolutely be clear that um, we all know that someone who is really um, uh, in the depths of uh, alcohol use disorder That needs to be addressed right away because it it can be immediately life-threatening if they do something like um, drink excessively and then drive. Mm -hmm. We've all seen examples of that. It not only threatens them, it threatens the people around them. Uh, And certainly then they're at risk for the long-term health impacts of um, alcohol dependence and and also the social and and relational impacts. It often breaks up families, it destroys relationships, Makes you unable to work, and sometimes you'll lose your job and your livelihood. Tobacco dependence doesn't do that to people, right? It kills them slowly. I like to say the consequence curve is very shallow in terms of its steepness, uh, but it really reaches a very high level if you continue to use. And alcohol, the consequence curve can get very steep very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think most people would say you, you really have to address the alcohol dependence. And what we say in our treatment program is, do both. A lot of the principles of treatment are similar. Patients recognize that they're dependent on both things, and they're usually willing, especially once they're engaged in alcohol treatment, to to look at and engage in exploring how they might stop using tobacco, recognizing the long-term health risks that everyone's aware of. So we favor simultaneous treatment um, and you know, that the timing can be worked out between you and the, the treatment providers for the alcohol dependence. It either can be done if it's inpatient, which is unusual these days, or together with an outpatient mm-hmm. intensive therapy.
0: Well, we talked about the, uh, the relationship between the addiction of tobacco and alcohol. How about gambling? My suspicion is there's a relationship there. If you just walk through any typical casino, I mean, there's a lot of cigarette smoke.
1: Yeah, a lot less well-studied, but there is a connection between other... Um, addictive behaviors uh, and tobacco use and I guess it's not surprising in that uh, people who are susceptible to one may be susceptible to other uh, substance use or Mm -hmm. social addictions because the feedback loop is the same in that, that dopaminergic reward system that we all have and it needs to get fed in certain ways and people who are probably genetically predisposed in one way or another for these are predisposed to lots of different kinds of addictions, yeah
0: I know most of the patients that I have who have been smokers and who've been successful in quitting were not successful on their first attempt. Do you know how many attempts it typically takes for someone to uh, discontinue tobacco?
1: You know, People throw out all kinds of numbers. and I, when I read the studies, I recognize that the range for what people um, t- say is the number of times they made serious attempts to quit uh, varies widely. And in my own clinical experience, it's the same. Most people say it's somewhere between 5 and 10. Mm-hmm. It, it almost doesn't matter. The, the message is clear that tobacco dependence, like any other substance use disorder, is a remitting and relapsing condition. Yeah. And it's never one and done. And so for people like us who who, who see patients in an internal medicine practice to think that we could provide treatment once and then we could forget it. it. It's like any other chronic illness. It requires constant management and continue to ask, where are you now with this? And, uh, and knowing that there's risk for relapse, um, asking periodically, are you, are you still smoke-free? Mm-hmm. And then helping people get back with a plan to quit if they've relapsed. So it's many, many times for most people. It's not a straight line, never one and done. It's usually a long and sometimes circuitous journey
0: well, just reflecting the difficulty in changing that behavior.
1: Right. And for most any health behavior change that we as physicians deal with with our patients, um, we get frustrated by that fact that most health behavior change isn't something that I can simply talk to you about and we agree that this is what you're going right. to do and it happens. It it just doesn't. And this is one of those that is particularly difficult.
0: So how do you deal with patients who come to you and say, I want to stop smoking, I've tried multiple things. Nothing has worked. How can you help me?
1: The first thing I do is really say, if we can take a few minutes, let's dig in a little bit. Tell me about what you've done before. Because I want to know, have they really had the best treatment? And what we know is best treatment is combination of supportive counseling, ideally by a counselor who is knowledgeable about substance use disorders and tobacco in particular, and effective pharmacotherapy that combination supportive counseling and effective pharmacotherapy and so some people say that they've they've um, tried a program that they did online or that they uh, went to um, a uh, an education-based program and attended a few weeks Uh, and i'd say those things may be effective for some but not for most or they'll talk about how they use the pharmacotherapy and these medications, because it's a re- remitting relapsing disorder it, it, and the brain changes after years of use of these uh, substances, such as tobacco and the nicotine in it, it's not going to turn around in a day or a week or even a month. So people who say, well, I used nicotine replacement therapy, for example, and, and it simply didn't work. If you dig into the history, you find, well, I they used um, an ineffective dose for a length of time that was so short it would none of the data would support that it would be helpful for for people. And you realize that, in fact, they haven't. (laughs) They haven't (laughs) tried everything. In fact, the things they've tried, they they didn't use properly at all, and maybe there are some new opportunities now that they should take advantage of.
0: Okay. Do you have patients where you've literally tried everything and still have difficulty with them?
1: Sure. (coughs) I've had patients who've tried what I thought was really effective therapy um, on multiple occasions, and they, they have relapsed. Um, it, that doesn't mean that you can't retry even some of the things that you tried before and often in those patients it's not um, different medications or new doses or new combinations and we can certainly explore those things but it's to use some tech counseling techniques to say well what are the barriers what are the things that are really um Behind this, talk about the last relapse episode, for instance, and tell me what it was about. And you may find out, not uncommonly, um, well, uh, the last two times I've relapsed, I, I actually was out with, every year I go on a fishing trip with my buddies. And it's usually a time where we where we drink a lot and sometimes we fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. um, that's a setup, right? It's a setup. And they all pull out their cigars and everyone smokes sure. at night. And I relapse. And so you'll find that there really are some uh, behavioral things that they just need to, that they're probably already aware of as they talk to you about that history, that they need to change. If we're going to be successful, then there are some things you probably won't be able to do, maybe for a long time, maybe never. Mm -hmm. But we'll figure out a way to get you back to those. And then I do explore the medications again. Sometimes people say, I've tried everything and it didn't work. And you find out, well, I took such and such a medication or a combination of medicines. I was actually abstinent for over six months and was doing well. And I relapsed when, you know, my uh, grandson got terribly ill and it was a very stressful time. So you can say, well, sounds like that worked for you. Maybe we should try again and just get a new behavioral plan together and, and get your confidence up and let's try it again. Mm-hmm. So I, I really try to dig into the history so that I can understand if it really was a failure or they had adverse effects that we would say we can't use those medications, or they really did have effective behavioral therapy and we just need to intensify it. And if that's the case, then we look at are there more intense ways we can provide it. Sure. Let's talk about a
0: treatment that may not be for everybody, but maybe for the uh, more difficult to, uh, to treat, uh, residential treatment programs. When should we recommend that to a patient?
1: And it's pretty obvious the patient who's tried everything. Yep. <laughs> so um, I believe that patients who really have had multiple relapse episodes, patients who have some risk factors for likely relapse, and, and those in my mind are other substance use disorders in their history. Um, so like the people we were talking about recently about um, you know recovering alcoholics people who have some underlying serious mental illness, people who live in an environment where they are constantly exposed to tobacco smoke, uh, so with spouse or others that they live with, Um, or people who've really never, who've tried multiple times, never been able to get to a point where they can really get to a quit date and and stick with it for any length of time, you know, less than a month Mm -hmm. of abstinence. So those are all things that tell me that that person is, probably highly addicted and very likely to relapse again. Uh, to me, those are patients who are, are helped by um, residential treatment. The other group I'd say is, are people who have serious medical comorbidity. They have to stop. Mm-hmm. So we see people who, for example, have, um, are on a transplant list and their doctor said, listen, we're not gonna give you a new heart or new lungs if you're still smoking. Or the the person who's orthopedic surgeon says we're not going to do your spinal fusion unless you stop smoking.
0: So it's kind of like the uh, bariatric surgery for the obese patient. You right. Know,
1: it's, yeah. It's a must. Yep. It must must happen right away. And and I've I've just got to do whatever I can, and I want to do the the most and likely thing to help me. Mm-hmm. It's been difficult. You know, if they if they would have been able to stop with less intense therapies at that point, they probably would have. So those are the kind of patients that we see in our residential program. And I, I have to say that ours is the, right now the only operating residential program we've been operating for since 1992, mm-hmm. so for a long time.
0: Now, you, you were a lead author in a uh, Mayo Clinic Proceedings article on residential treatment programs for the treatment of nicotine dependence. And I, I think it pretty much described our program here at Mayo. Uh, what's the typical duration of treatment that takes place in the residential unit?
1: So our program now is um, basically it's one week. It's it's eight days. We have one one day where they come in for intake, and we happen to run it f- from a Friday to a Friday is how we operate our program now. So they come in for um, intake evaluations, examinations, um, history taking, initial visit with counselors. And then we um, decide, well, what is the best treatment plan? So that's... Um, deciding on what pharmacotherapy we'll use. They work with their counselor on some of the behavioral planning. And then usually we're spending those first two days trying to make sure that we're managing their withdrawal symptoms well, so that they can engage in both group and individual counseling. Uh, there are a number of uh, lectures. It really follows a pattern very similar to other inpatient addiction treatments. It's shorter. Um, and then, um, we go for the week. We, we invite family in for some of our sessions um, if they can attend because it really, like other addictions, affects everyone around them. Sure. Uh, and then uh, on that last Friday, we have a graduation program and, and send them on their way um, and then have a systematic follow-up with them. For patients who live at a distance, we'll do it by phone counseling sessions and people who are nearby will encourage them to come in for face-to-face counseling visits for follow-up. And we'll yeah. do that for at least the first few months and, and after that as needed.
0: And they're confined to this unit during those eight days, correct?
1: Yeah, it's residential. So the unit that we have is actually, um, it's licensed as hotel space. Mm-hmm. And so it's not hospital, so they're, and they're not in a hospital unit. Um, they, um, we have rules, and, and although they're not, quote, locked up, and some patients have called and say, I just need a place that where you lock me up, For a week, and so I'll quit smoking. And we don't obviously do that, but we do say the rules are: during the first weekend, you're you're confined. We'll go out together. This we have some group activities. We'll we'll go outside the unit. And for the first uh, like Monday and Tuesday, then uh, say you can go out with a buddy. You can sign out of the program, go out, walk around, do things outside when we have off time and free time. And after that, you can go out by yourself. Mm -hmm. And we ask people to sign inside out. Uh, We actually. use uh, what's called expired carbon monoxide it's a simple biochemical test to confirm that they're not smoking i was gonna ask that next (laughs) so they 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 when Mm. they sign out and come back we ask them to uh, to do it we teach them how to do it we just have the monitor sitting right there at the desk when they come in uh, and record their readings and we have had literally one or two patients who've who've used tobacco while they're in the program it's they really, of course, they're motivated not to smoke. And I think that the feeling of disappointment that the other patients would have that they've gotten to know uh, also motivates them mm-hmm. not to smoke. Um, and we have a highly successful program. So about 55% of our patients are not smoking at six months to a year.
0: That's amazing. That's quite high.
1: It is, it is amazing. Also, when you think about a, a 40 to 50% of the patients who come in have serious psychiatric comorbidity, like mm-hmm. other substance use disorders or serious mental illness, and about 40% have serious underlying medical comorbidities like COPD, coronary heart disease, cancer, and other things. So uh, yeah, I think it's a really good outcome for patients who are um, who have serious comorbidity, are very likely to have relapsed, and have never been successful before. Yeah.
0: Is the treatment they receive a combination of pharmacologic and counseling? Yeah,
1: it's the same, it's just more intense. Right? Right. We see them every day. Uh, And in doing that, so the physician who supervises each program, we have several physicians who are expert, um, we adjust medications on a daily basis if needed to try to get to that point where we are suppressing withdrawal and urges to smoke um, so that they can engage in that behavioral activity that they need to engage in. But yes, it's a lot more intensive counseling, both Mm -hmm. in group and one-on-one.
0: How about the cost? Is this self-pay, or does insurance cover it?
1: Insurance covers a little bit of this program. Right now the self-pay cost is around $5,000. Um, we actually are looking at, you know, the program has been in this basic um, template, this eight-day template for a long time, since about 1992. And we'd tried some other approaches that didn't seem to work In before we launched this program in its current um setting and right now we're looking at well maybe it's time to look again and try to shorten it to the, to a work week mm-hmm. and so we're looking at how we revise it and we're going to probably test it in, a, in some groups tell we're going to tell patients that's what we're doing uh, uh, a program that really lasts from Monday through Thursday all four days full and then Friday morning would be kind of the the last checkout for those who, who need to stay over
0: mm-hmm. okay. Well, we've been discussing the management of nicotine dependence in challenging situations with Dr. Taylor Hayes, an internist and director of the Nicotine Dependence Center at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Taylor, thanks for sharing uh, in all this information with us. It's been a pleasure. Fascinating. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. We release a new podcast weekly, each covering a different medical topic pertinent to the primary care provider. You can find us at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.